1: to strange familiars this is a bonus episode for everybody
2: not just patrons everybody
1: this is for everybody oh that's this, nice this is my annual talk with brother richard well we talk usually more than once a year but i try to do a christmas show with brother richard every year this one wasn't particularly christmasy in tone but we had planned to talk about these subjects before and we just happened to do it around the time of christmas
2: i don't think anybody minds a little unconventional christmas
1: yeah, we get into some, some talk about, you know, demons and some of these darker spirits and some of the darker aspects of this. that tends to come up.
2: Well, it's kind of a, I mean, not to be all strange familiar to you, but it's, you know, it's a liminal time.
1: Yeah, indeed it is. Indeed it is. And no one better to talk to than Brother Richard about this stuff. Before we get to Brother Richard, I just want to thank our patrons. Thank you so much, patrons. We could not, nor would not, do Strange Familiars without you. Thank you for your help. If you like what we do and you'd like to help us continue to make Strange Familiars, you can become a patron at Patreon. It's patreon.com slash Familiars. All of our patrons get commercial-free versions of the weekly episodes plus extra episodes every month. We usually do at least one. Sometimes we do more full episodes of Strange Familiars just for our patrons. It's patreon.com slash Familiars. if you want to check it out. You can also check out Apple Podcasts. We have Patron of the Strange there. If you join on Apple Podcasts, you get the commercial free weekly episodes and the bonus episodes as well. And if you just want to make a one time donation, you can do that. In the show notes under every episode, there's a paypal.me link. You can click on that and make a one time donation. That helps us as well. All right, let's go ahead and get to my talk with Brother Richard.
3: like to welcome brother richard back to strange familiars how are you doing hi tim it's very good to be with you and back with the strange familiars posse once again great to have you here
1: so tonight we're going to be talking about i guess some more negative kind of entities we did a show on aliens Mm. and we're going to do a show on maybe maybe demons or they will come into part of it and and we'll Mm -hmm. talk about some of these sort of darker aspects of this i suppose sure I think during the angel show, we just basically said, like, a demon is is essentially a fallen angel.
3: Yes. So in, in the Christian tradition, what is classically a demon originally was an angel, um, was part of that cohort of angels who, when offered whatever the test was, we do not know definitively in the Christian tradition. We don't say we know definitively what it was. But the fathers and mystics of the church have said that essentially it was the revelation of the plan of the incarnation and that that meant that uh, a number of the angels led by one of the the high archangels who at that stage was known as lucifer turned against that plan and fell away and these are what we now call the demons
1: now i think there's a sort of pop culture idea that a lot of these ghost hunting shows have put into people's head that and i don't doubt that sometimes they might run into negative entities but they will sort of go from zero to demon immediately <laughs>
3: You know, sometimes there's a huge lack of understanding, I think, of the many, many possibilities, the many possible categories, and very often the very complicated mix of things that result in, in some of these phenomena that can be present. And while there may be a demonic or a diabolical element present in, in some of these things, I would say for the most part, just in my own experience as well, for the most part, that's not often what we are dealing with.
1: Yeah. And we talked before also about a sort of an ecology of these different entities, the good, bad sure, and everything yeah. in between.
3: Absolutely. Yeah.
1: With angels maybe being at the extreme of the good side and, and demons being at the extreme of the bad side. But there's things that can fill in all in the middle there.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, again, it it, it would be a, a teaching of, of many of the, the kind of the the early fathers, particularly that there was a kind of a ladder of being. Stretching, uh, you know, from the the entirely spiritual celestial spirits right the way down to the very earthly experiences of consciousness, and and then going further down into the kind of the inanimate, etc. So whatever step you can conceive along that ladder, there is probably a being or a level of consciousness that is present on those steps.
1: So we're generally dealing with this idea of non-human intelligence, which... Mm as you said, is is just present in many traditions, if not all of them.
3: Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, at the, at the moment, it's it's the kind of cry that's going on uh, behind all this, the, the, the kind of disclosure movement over there in the States, especially. And, and it, you know, there's something of a little bit of a smile with this, particularly when they begin to talk about, you know, well, if non-human intelligence is revealed, you know, all of the religions and all of the spiritualities of the world will fall or will collapse or there'll be chaos, or whatever. And, and, and that's, you know, forgetting that well, actually, the religions have taught that there's non-human intelligence from the very beginning. Now, okay, we might have difference in terms of how we categorize or how we encounter or how we relate to. That's fine. But there's certainly no difficulty in understanding that non-human intelligence exists and and that we can be in relationship with it.
1: Taking a sidestep to speak about the way we deal with the other. And Mm. this is one of my favorite examples of this you you were kind of involved in this for me i was in hex hollow and had this experience of hearing wood knocks and i hadn't been there for a while and got a little bit creepy and i walked down the path and there was a dead cat in the middle of the path Mm -hmm. and i sort of took this as a, a negative right away mm, sure yeah and you said very wisely i think now like you, you sort of shook me out of the the sort of human way of thinking i guess or the you know that locked into into the way we observe the world mm. so well wait a minute this you know sometimes the other doesn't think like we think and what you're reading is like oh this is this, this horrible dark thing may not necessarily be that you know it, mm. it may be the other trying to get your attention and it just doesn't speak in the way that humans speak in that sense mm.
3: There's a wonderful quote. It pertains to this idea from one of Terry Pratchett's books where he speaks about orangutans. And he he says, you know, in every world where orangutans exist, people are convinced they can speak, but that they choose not to. He says the problem is not that orangutans don't speak. The problem is that orangutans speak orangutan and humans don't understand it. And so this is the problem When, when we're dealing with the other You know, we are approaching, uh, I think it's important to approach it as though we're approaching a a completely different culture, an alien culture. And so how we um, perceive it, the rules of discourse, what's polite in that culture, what isn't polite, what can offend, what doesn't offend, uh, we have to be in the position of, of listening and learning. Now, tradition and folklore and all of those the kind of things supply us with a lot of that. You know, they they reassure us that there are ways of negotiating, there are ways of not offending, there are ways of of um, encountering these others in either safe ways or at least in ways that limit harm or danger. The difficulty can be when someone you know, without knowledge of of those those kind of traditions, marches in and sort of decides, well, I'm going to demand. Reaction or action from from the other, according to the philosophy that I already have in my mind, and then chaos happens very often because suddenly somebody discovers it won't stay in the woods; it's come home with me, you know. Or, or you know, we have all of these people at the moment in in the UFO world talking about the hitchhiker effect. Well, the religions have spoken about that for <laughs> forever and ever. You know, the idea that that if you encounter these things and stimulate these things and want dialogue with these things you don't get to say when they stop talking. And so I think uh, one of the steps that's missing at the moment when we encounter or speak about non-human intelligence is the idea that whether it's the indigenous traditions or the religions or the wisdom traditions of the world or even simply what your grandmother told you to do when you went into the woods years ago, you know or not, not whistle while you pass the graveyard or whatever it might be, all of those things had a history That had evolved because somebody had an experience somewhere and they learned a lesson. And I think we have to, we have to know these lessons. So if we're if we're very divided and we've got all the latest technology and we're running in with our mindset, whatever it might be, without listening or without trying to learn the language of whatever we're encountering, the likelihood is we're we're in for trouble. And I've seen that trouble. I've seen it up close. I've seen it happen to people again and again and very often been part of those who were kind of brought in to to clean up or to make peace or to say you know, um, look this won't happen again and we arrive at a kind of a armed detente maybe but it's been going on forever, you know
1: Yes and I think some people can barge in with a different kind of technology and have similar problems you know, the, the technology, the occult for instance, cannot always go as people would like it to
3: Well, you know, one of the one of the interesting things is whether it's, you know, in the monastic life, we would not even begin to deal with anything around this until we've done at least eight, nine years of training. And then you would only do it apprenticed to people who are really well founded and trained in it. And then what would be separated out are the guys who can deal with this and the guys who maybe aren't necessarily as able to deal with it. But now, particularly through the kind of universalism of knowledge that the internet has provided, where it's not the case that, you know, the grimoire is handed down from master to apprentice, but it's literally Googled and found on Amazon and somebody goes off to try it. Right. Not that I would recommend, I mean, obviously from my own tradition, I wouldn't recommend dealing with any of that stuff, but people do and people need to be kept safe. And so one of the difficulties is people then attempting experimentation by themselves And I can tell you when that happens in the spiritual world, that's like dropping blood into the ocean. You know, predators smell it and they will make their way um, very, very quickly. And I'm not trying to frighten anybody. And, you know, people will dismiss me because they'll say, oh, well, of course he's going to say that, you know. And that's fine. You can say that all you like. But when you've been part of the cleanup crew that's had to kind of fix things or help things. And I know people as well in other traditions other than my own who have also had to, you know, clean up the issues uh, for for others themselves as well. And we would all say the same thing, which is, you know, safety first, second and third. Please be careful. Please know what you're getting involved in. And don't think that you have power just because you have technique. Technique alone does not bestow power.
1: Very similar, I've taken to saying, and, and I know some people just have to experience stuff for their own. People, yeah, sure. people are going to hear me go out in the woods and they're going to want to do it. And that's fine. And I can't stop people and nor would I say, you know, don't do it. But I, yeah. I do recommend that if you don't feel like you have to go out there. Yeah, sure. And sure. If you can enjoy hearing me do it on the podcast or watching a documentary or something and stop there, that that that's great. You're going to be, you know, that's easier. Yeah. That's an easier path. Let's say that.
3: You know, I think there's there's a vocational call element as well and that some people will find themselves, you know, called into this Uh, And I don't mean to aggrandize it in any way, but I mean, it's just it's just the line that they that they will walk. And to some extent, they will then have the gift, as you have indeed, of kind of sensitizing others to the fact that this side of the world, this side of life exists, which I think is really important and really positive. But, you know, I used to bring groups of schoolchildren on a tour around our woods in in Arts and uh, in Donegal, and we would pass the cattle fence and the cattle fence was an electric fence. And we would warn them, that's an electric fence. Don't touch it. You will be shocked. There was always, always at least one in the group who would immediately touch the fence. (laughs) Of course. And this is just the gift of it. And then we all learn from them um, because everybody sees the reaction. And now it's not just your man talking. It's now we've seen the reaction. And there is a certain percentage of humanity that will always touch the electric fence. And the main thing is to make sure that they are surrounded by people who can then ensure that they are they are safely dealt with afterwards you know and i think it's true in this in this world in, in this particular world as well the world of the supernatural or the spiritual whatever we're naturally curious it is actually the world we are supposed to be operating in i mean we would say that even in the christian tradition you know we're, we're called to be supernaturally active uh, we're called to know this world and to, to be safe in it and to accomplish the spiritual path in a particular way that protects us from the negative end of things but it is actually part of us and so I, I think one of the, the great waves of curiosity and interest in the paranormal, one of the things that, that simply comes from is the fact that we are longing to be at home again and to be part of this great communion of being. What you know, the, the humanity, unfortunately, is, is um, oh, as G.K. Chesterton put, put it, you know, um, perhaps it is our eyes that are fallen and Eden is all around us, but we just can't see it. And I think there's a certain truth to that, that because of our kind of falling into egoism or falling into into self-centeredness, there is an inability to to know how to negotiate this world very well. And so things like stories and myths and um, and then moving up into a higher level of being, you know, in terms of wisdom, um, wisdom traditions and, and religions offer a tremendous store of wisdom as to how to deal with this and how to move back into into sight and perception of it
1: and i'm not saying this is the way it should go for for everyone but for me Mm. my journey through the paranormal led me back to the church it was a very big part of it and 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 sort of tapping me on the shoulder and letting me know there is more right and then just for me i went well if there is (laughs) more that maybe there's much more there's much more and but that's not always the way it goes for people sometimes it leads people the opposite way and these are the, the reason why i say like if you're going to do it if you have to be careful and observe these quote unquote rules or these traditions our ancestors yeah. are set up
3: yeah yeah absolutely absolutely and again i'm not here to proselytize I, I i'll speak to the to the truth of my tradition as i as i believe it to have it but um, i'm certainly not here to proselytize i am here to say please be careful you know mind how you go and um if you are going to go into these things you know um really really do your research well
1: yeah yeah there's plenty of tradition out there that sort of uh guides the way for us and what's really interesting when you talk about these different traditions is the areas they cross over seem to be like the most essential truth, I guess. Like, like almost every tradition is going to tell you, "Don't follow the lights."
3: Yeah, <laughs> it's very, it's very true. It's very true. And now we have the wonderful uh, scientist. I, re- I remember I was listening just recently. I think it was to Colum Kelleher, um, speaking about some of the, the the Skinwalker Ranch stuff. And his whole thing was, you know, if you see the blue lights, run. Um, and and I I I mean, I really. And I don't, I don't mean to sound patronizing, but I, I really kind of smiled and laughed. I was like, yes, yes, you're dead right. You're, you're getting it, you know. But sometimes you, you get that because your grandfather told you it. And sometimes you get that because, you know, you put your hand on the electric fence. And I think there's something in humanity that has to learn this over and over and over again. So this seems to be the way we're learning it at the moment.
1: You want to talk about our consciousness and where we meet with the other? Like, how does that play into it?
3: Yeah, I think this is really important. Um, so anybody listening to Strange Familiars or Where Did the Road Go or any of the, the kind of circle of those podcasts will know that, that you know, people often talk about the whole element of co-creation. So I think it's fair to say that there's a kind of a general understanding that, oh, OK, maybe maybe light is the most basic form of this stuff and we encounter it as light. And then perhaps it plays with our consciousness in some way and we see whatever it is we see so there's there's two roads that can that we can then go down from that point of view the first is to turn around and say okay what we are seeing is utterly false and the light is the only thing that's there and maybe it has a physical effect on our brain or on our neurology uh, neurobiology etc and as a result we are launched into a kind of a ontological chaos and the brain pulls up images and throws those out right so that's one way we can go the difficulty with that is that people tend to produce the same things over and over again, whether it's the greys, whether it's Sasquatch, whether it's little people, whether it's these, these same things seem to appear over and over. Now, we can reach into things as far back as like platonic archetypes to say, well, that's the reason for that. Or, you know, or we've, we, we live in a kind of a culture where these images are present. So therefore, this is what it sh- shows up. But I think one of the things that we forget is that, again, going back to the sacred traditions, most of them, I I know certainly Buddhism, Taoism, Hinduism, and Judaism, and Christianity, Islam to some extent, but a little bit different, all of them would say that in visionary experiences, while the psychology of the individual is present, what we are dealing with are entities who can literally clothe themselves in what they find within us in lower level visionary experiences. So somebody like Teresa of Avila in our tradition, who's a great extraordinary teacher, speaks about the importance for the, the person of prayer, the person of meditation to purify the imagination. Because one of the things that this does is it means we're taking charge of the wardrobe, if you like. So we're, we're being more conscious of what's possible for these entities to clothe themselves in. And so we get truer and clearer sight along the way. There are quite a number of stories, for example, in the lives of the saints where different apparitions would appear and things like that. And you have the saints saying, no, that's not what you are. Show me what you really are. No, that's not what you are. Show me what you really are. And you have shape changing and shape changing until eventually the true being of whatever whatever it is 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 revealed. But again, this is where someone has the meditative depth, the contemplative experience, and the discernment to be able to know what's real and what isn't in front of them. Um, And I speak to stories across multiple traditions when I mention those kind of stories. So if we're going to deal with the kind of co-creation end of things, I think one of the things that the practitioner or the observer or the seeker of the other needs to be really aware of is what am I putting in? What am I loading myself with? because that's what they're going to use. And so uh, I think we need to be be very aware of what goes in and also very aware that our first level of experience is not just observe and record, it is observe and question and deliberately question. Um, So we would say in the early stages of apparition and vision, there are two particular kinds. The first is what we call an intellectual or imaginal vision, which is where... We're looking out and seeing something, but it's actually being projected inside. So other people around us may not see it at all or may see something completely different depending on their particular um, consciousness. I often use as an image of this, the kind of filters we can put on our phone cameras. So you can hold up the phone camera and see the room in front of you as it is. And you can put a filter in and suddenly you have an animal or, you know, a, a different face or whatever along the way. In reality, that's not what's there, but the filtering effect is putting it there. And so from that point of view, um, the imagination is being used. Now, we would say the imagination itself is a faculty of the soul. And so the stronger the soul becomes, the more aware the soul becomes, the more attentive the soul becomes, the the easier it becomes for us to catch what's false and what's real. The second level of vision then is, is when we begin to have actual sensory apprehension of something that's going on in the outside world. So that's tuning into things that are there normally, absolutely there, but our senses capacity or, or bandwidth wouldn't normally take these in. If we, uh, again, attune or attain to a certain level of interior quiet or stability, these things can begin to appear and to be present. Now, all of the great spiritual prat- practitioners say, when they turn up, ignore them don't enter into dialogue with them. This is still a very low level of being and of consciousness you're dealing with. And you don't want them to attach to you. You don't want them to kind of promise you anything else. You want to ascend further and higher. And so we try and move beyond those as quickly as we can, um, if necessary, invoking higher spiritual powers to protect us from them. So there's a lot in the co-creation end of things that says that very often when somebody comes back and says, you know, I had an experience of the other, whatever it might be. The first thing we have to do is really, really, really know the story of that individual person. Because very often what's actually playing out are subconscious patterns or old pathologies or old habitual experiences that are just being played out now on a wider kind of more dramatic stage. And until we know the person well, we can't take the experience per se simply as it is.
1: There is an element in my experience of, um, I'm trying to think of the, the nice way to say this. I've run into people who are having, you know, they've called me out and they're experiencing very negative things. Sure. And they're very afraid of whatever's happening. And they're, they're ascribing a very dark thing to it. And I've noticed that often these people will also have a steady diet of pretty extreme horror movies Mm. and they say, that's like, oh yeah, that's all I watch. And Mm. you wonder, it's like, okay, well it's kind of what you're feeding yourself.
3: You're you're kind of into, into chicken and egg at that point. I I, I mean, one of the things that's very interesting is we speak of attention, sheer attention, turning our attention to something as being a spiritual act. And that attention itself is the energy of the soul is the spiritual energy of the soul. So when we direct our attention to something fully, it, it's it's almost a prayer state. Um, Simone Weil, the great philosopher, said pure attention uh, to anything is almost identical to prayer or almost identical as, as, uh, to, to deliberate prayer. So you think of yourself, say, when you're composing music or somebody's uh, um, Hobby might be painting or, or writing or whatever. And when you're in the flow of that, it's almost as though the rest of the world doesn't exist. You're, you're in it completely. You might have real effort and real you know, frustration with it. It mightn't go right or, or anything like that, but you're in it. You're, you're present to it. You're directing the attention of your being towards something. One of the things I genuinely feel is that a lot of the kind of more negative encounters with the other what the other seems to be demanding more than anything else is attention. And I often wonder whether that's the spiritual energy that these things are feeding on more than anything else. As Simon Young, the great fairy investigator, um, he was the man who came up with the, the the fairy census recently, part of the Fairy Investigation Society. In an article in the 14 Times, some, I think, maybe a year, year ago, two years ago, he was quoting um, J.R.R. Tolkien and was saying how... So many of these kind of mythological uh, or semi-mythological experiences that people have, and I, I don't I don't mean mythological as in untrue. I mean, you know, parallel to the kind of the great mythological cycles where people seem to stumble into them or discover whether it's the fairies dancing or the aliens landing or whatever it might be. They seem to have a staged theatrical presentation element to them, and this has been noted by lots of investigators along the way, and most of them speak of it in, in terms of, well, is the stage theatricality of it to distract you from whatever their real their real, um, experience is or their, their real activity is? There may be some element of that in it. But one of the things that left me wondering, and I think Simon Young said it as well, is perhaps it's theatrical for the sake of theatricality, to simply draw our attention, to simply um, feed on the attention of whether you want to call it psychological energy or spiritual energy or mental focus or whatever, whatever you wish. But we know that when we are in heightened attentive states, the brain uh, works differently. The mind works differently. The body even neurobiologically works differently. And we would say in the spiritual tradition, the soul is even working differently. It's doing what it was meant to do, which is attend to be present. And I think there is something there about how we then feed the imagination how we feed the attentiveness as to how the world then manifests around us if i am i mean i know lots of horror fans who are great horror fans but have tremendous senses of humor and as a result it doesn't seem to have major effect on them there is a kind of a dispelling of the effect very quickly and then there are those who seem to sink into it and when they sink into it you know it can provoke a very negative worldview.
1: Yeah, I'm not, I don't mean that there's something inherently wrong with horror movies. I, no, I, nor, nor do I. Yeah, nor yeah, do I, I, I watch the occasional horror movie. I don't make it my life. Yeah, sure. The, the, something you said in one of our conversations that, that just made a massive impact on me and, and changed the way I think and to an extent mm. the way the way I live because of that. And I think you were quoting someone else, and you, you said the soul is soft wax, and
3: everything mm, can mm. leave an impression on it. Yeah, that was one of the early fathers of the church. Um, I, I think it was either Cassian or Clemenius. I can't remember which now. But essentially, that's the image that he was using was that uh, so what was was that just like we we can impress a seal. So somebody who's writing a an official letter or an official document or a doctorate or something like that impresses the university seal or the. Or the, um, you know, the, some people even do it just with domestic letters and things like that, you know. Uh, they put their coat of arms on it or whatever, and then the wax hardens, and it, it hardens in that shape. So he says, in the in the same way, any idea even we have or image that we hold impresses itself upon the soul. And it takes great effort to remove that. He talks about having to reheat the wax, you know, to melt the wax down. And we do that through the heat of attentive prayer, actually. So again, it's, it's worth recognizing we even speak of sensory impressions, you know, ourselves from a biological point of view. And we know that all of those memories are in there. They build us. They biologically affect us. They change us. They can even have generational effect along the way. I think it was the great Oscar Wilde. On one occasion, he was in the States for a, a visit and um, there had been a number of terrible murders in New York or Chicago. I can't remember which. And he was asked his opinion on it and he said, well, I can give you the reason for them. And he said, in typical, wildly and exaggerated fashion, he said, the reason for them is the ugliness of your wallpaper. (laughs) And he he was roundly abused and insulted for that, as you can imagine, in the press. But what he meant, based on his own aesthetic philosophy at the time, was that if we surround people as children with the beautiful, and in our tradition, we'd say with the true, the beautiful, and the good and stimulate that in them, then what you, what you get is the growth towards the true, the beautiful, and the good. But if you surround them with ugliness, poverty, living in, in a kind of a, an experience of constant need or constant fear, then naturally what you get out on the other side is an adult who, whose experience of life is so negative that very often, you know, without, without huge effort, they become trapped in that cycle. And I think that's very true for, for addiction of, of whatever kind it is. I mean, addiction essentially is trapping human attentiveness, whether it's through biological or mental, um, mental experience. But, yeah, I, I think there's something to this and that this is one of the ways in which the other across all of its categories reveals itself, you know, in the kind of theater that can either in its highest levels offer catharsis and purification and healing and unity as the Greek said, you know, all good drama does or in its kind of pantomiming experience down at the lower and more negative end, causing, you know, destruction and fear.
1: Do you have some ideas? We often talk about this uh, going back to sleep during paranormal things.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Do you have some ideas how that works in all this?
3: I think a huge amount of of that is actually locking people into um, into vulnerability Into sleep states, taking from the positive, for example, one of the great saints and doctors of the church uh, of the um, late 1800s was St. Therese of Lisieux, often known as the little flower, Um, though, you know, that gives a kind of an image of maybe saccharine sweetness that that lady did not have. She was as hard as nails in the best sense, um, an extraordinary spiritual warrior and a great example of someone of total presence and attentiveness. But one of the things that disturbed her was for a number of years whenever she would go to formal meditation in the monastery she would fall asleep straight away. Um and I got to the point where it was really upsetting her and she she prayed to know why this was and the response I'm I'm paraphrasing now but the response that she got was I have to put you asleep to get you out of your own way so that I can work on you. Now that's from the divine down as far as she was concerned at least and indeed as far as our tradition would be concerned. But I think there's something of the same from the negative end of things. You know, we have to put you asleep so that we can get you out of our way as such so that we can work on you. You know, in sleep, there is a certain vulnerability. It's interesting. All of the great spiritual traditions have practices to be done before sleep so as to protect the person during the time of sleep. I mean, we can go go as simple as that that old style child's prayer. You know, there are four corners on my bed. There are four angels now over my head, St. Matthew, Mark, St. Luke and John. Please bless the bed that I lie, lie on if any evil spirit comes to wake me before dawn. The Blessed Virgin Mary I'll call on and give my soul to Jesus forever and ever. I mean, that's literally the little rhymed prayer that was taught to every child in the Catholic tradition right the way up to the sort of mid 20th century or so. And it's all there you know anointing of the bed the calling of the angels the protection of the saints and especially who's going to be called in if any negative entity appears the blessed virgin so all of that is there and you know it really interested me um some i I think it was about a year maybe two years ago but over on six degrees of, of john keel barbara fisher was talking to to a gentleman who had discovered that he could dispel the experiences of, of sleep paralysis and negative entities by calling on, uh, oh gosh, um, Elbereth, the Tolkien name for the, the the star lady, you know, the light of, of Elbereth. And he was kind of putting this towards, well, of course, I'm not calling on Jesus and I'm not calling on Mary and I, I don't have faith necessarily in those, but I'll call on Elbereth. Now I'm, again, I'm, I'm probably doing the man's story, a lack of justice. It's, it's pure pure memory I'm going on at the moment. But I was fascinated in the car listening to this, and being a good Tolkienian scholar, I kind of smiled to myself because Elbereth, the inspiration for Elbereth, and uh, Tolkien himself said this clearly, was Our Lady. Yeah. And so, in a sense, <laughs> through a Tolkienian interpretation, he he was actually calling on Our Lady in the midst of it all. And, and he might be un- unhappy to hear that, but that's at least the origin of the of the the figure in the Tolkien mythology. So I think. One of the things I would certainly say anybody who's walking a spiritual path is is the consecration of, of sleep and sleep time, according to whatever the tradition is that you're following. But being careful, you know, when we move into the dream world, uh, we are open to the spiritual in a way that very often we're not during during sleep uh, during sorry, during waking hours there's a lack of distraction and we move into a very symbolic world. We have, and I would agree with you, the interpretation of little dreams and big dreams. You know, sometimes a dream is just a dream. Sometimes it's a very clear, though maybe symbolic, inaction of the unconscious and maybe even of other consciousnesses that can speak to us in that time. There is a series of books by a anthropologist uh, who worked for the University of Maine, I believe. He was a um, Greek-American, Kyriakos Markides. Uh, he's written a number of books about orthodox spirituality. But before that, he wrote a series of books about a Christian Gnostic uh, healer uh, in, in on the island of Cyprus. Uh, I can't remember. Magus of the Sun, maybe, or something like that was the first book that he wrote. Anyway, they're, they're, they're very interesting because one of the things that this individual speaks about is our vulnerability in sleep, um, because we move into a world that we haven't learned to negotiate yet. And so a lot of the deeper spiritual traditions, Christian, Hindu, Muslim, Judaic, taoist you name them, one of the things they will often train the practitioner in is how to be more protected during the time of, of sleep and rest, and also how to continue in a meditative state even while in the states of, of sleep and rest. But again, that needs to be done with a very solid, good good teacher who's able to bring you through those things. So I do think this whole go back to sleep, you'll be fine. Some of that may may very well be simply we're putting you out of, out of um, your way, we're anesthetizing you in some way so that whatever needs to be done can be done. Um, and whether that's positive, as seems to be from the positive side of things, or negative, you know, there's usually both sides present.
1: So I've mentioned several times that I can stop any of these sleep paralysis, quote-unquote, abduction scenarios by saying the Hail Mary. Mm. It's uh, Since I first tried it, it's worked. It still works every single time. And I often get the question then, like, do you think these things are demons because of that? Mm. My answer to that, and likewise to what people say, like, oh, do you think Sasquatch is a demon? It does all this Mm. crazy stuff. My answer to that is generally like, I don't think so. I think Mm. they'd be a bigger problem, and I think there are more effective forms a demon could take to to get done
3: some devious things sure but why does it work then Mm, exactly so i think one of the things just as we move into this this thing one of the things to talk about is the fact that i mean if you're asking me do i think they're 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 demons or not my, my simple answer is i don't know um i suppose start from there but i would agree with your surmising that you know, if we take the whole ecology idea and and the idea of the, the line of, of being, um, there is no reason why you couldn't have a Sasquatch uh, that is, you know, I suppose in extreme cases, maybe, you know, in very isolated places, uh, you know, some kind of physical animal. You could also have it as a spiritual animal. You could have it as something. And, and all the traditions have taught this, that there are levels of being where, Matter and spirit are maybe more loosely mixed than they are with regard to humanity. And so um, they, they may exist in different, different at different levels uh, to us. You could also equally have something that is a physical presence, but that is being influenced either by the good or by the bad, just as uh, human beings can be influenced by the good or by the bad. So there's a lot of subtlety, again, in terms of investigating these things. But when it comes down to the sort of pray the gray away idea that's present, one of the things I think it's a very important point that you make often is that, you know, um, there seems to be something about faith and belief uh, ridding ourselves of these things or moving, at least moving them away um, in, in in the short term. And that would lead me to wonder. I suppose there's there's two levels of wondering. The first is if prayer to whatever deity one worships or whatever uh, whatever um, divinity that one is is in relationship with if that automatically stops them and makes them go away that would give me pause all right it would give me pause to sort of say you know why does an appeal to the highest good remove these experiences or stop them so i'm not i'm not saying they're demons by any means, but I am saying it's quite possible they may be things that are influenced by demons, um, or at least influenced by negative choices or negative um, experiences. The other element around it, which is is interesting, is to say uh, we can talk about it from one of the great theologians of the 20th century. It was a Jesuit by the name of Karl Rahner, who had this understanding of what he called the anonymous Christian, which is the idea that look, we're anybody who is seeking the truth or seeking the good regardless of what religious tradition they are in, they are de facto worshiping the one the one God, the one true creator. And so if if you call out to our lady and somebody else calls out to Buddha, um, that is coming from the same place within the person, which is the appeal to the to the divine, to the ultimate, to the transcendent, to whatever. Now, it's a whole other conversation, and probably not one for strange familiars, as to well who's actually calling out to the, to the true one or the real one or whatever that that's that's a whole other thing for the the, the religions to argue out amongst themselves and i'm not i'm not here to to speak on that obviously i've made my decision with regard to what, which tradition i believe in but the idea is that that what what is called out to the good is responded to by the ultimate good cs lewis uh, to to bring it into a kind of a fictional world for a minute cs lewis had this within one of the narnian chronicles Where we have a very good person, but who has been brought up worshipping a demonic entity, but in the fullness of consciousness uh, is is trying to live a good life and is, is presuming that to live according to the will of this entity is to do good because that's how they've been brought up. In the meantime, you have someone who has been brought up with the awareness of the true good divine entity, but has chosen to live a negative life. And at the end, they're brought forward in judgment, and the person who has known the true good uh, uh, divinity is taken away by the evil, by the evil one, by the evil entity, and the one who has worshipped the evil entity all his life is taken away by the good one. And he says to the to the good one, you know, wh- why is this possible? How is this happening? I've given my whole life over to that one, and now I realize he's evil. Surely I should be taken away for punishment. And the response is everything good that someone does, regardless of what they believe in, I receive because whatever they're doing as good is is to the ultimate good. And anything that is done negatively, regardless of what someone believes in, is received by the, the, the negative force. Now, again, it's a mythologizing, a fantasizing around it, but it basically would give an answer as to why when we appeal to the ultimate good, whether I'm crying out to you know to Buddha, to Elbereth, to, to Christ, to Mary, to you know to, to any of the, the particular deities or traditions that are that are there, there is a positive answer which is the withdrawal of these creatures or these 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 entities. And when we look at things like the fairy faith particularly you know, we also find within within those that the mere enunciation of the gospel or the divine names or whatever it might be, were often said to be a pain, a wound, a hurt to these creatures. So in the Irish sense, in the Celtic sense, the way that was dealt with was to say, well, these were obviously of side, but not full demons per se. They were, you know, the fallen ones who maybe only fell halfway. They were the ones who... Um, were maybe the natural forces or were the gods of old that had now been dismissed from their positions because they couldn't be there anymore because the christian revelation had come there were all kinds of explanations for it Um, but essentially they were saying anything that was repelled by the divine name had to at least have some kind of nefarious purpose behind it in some way and you know when we look at the the abduction phenomena and the stories that are told i mean the vast majority of them are very transgressive. You know, people are being transgressed against. Free will is is being reduced. Um, And you find the same narrative that you often find within the very negative side, which is the assumption of almost universal power by these things, the claim that I have everything and I have total power and you can do nothing to resist this in any way. And, you know, it always brings me back to that, the temptation of jesus uh, in the desert where you know the, the, the demon says to him i own all this you can have all of this from me you know um i have total power over all this i can give you all the kingdoms of the earth straight away or or go to the genie stories like it etc you know the, the jinn stories as well and what we find of course always is their false promises and false power and false authority so that uh very often the encounter with these entities um, leaves someone in a, in a in a much worse state than they were before. And yes, I know there there is the whole thing of coming back with a greater spiritual viewpoint or a greater experience of oneness or ecological consciousness, and th- these are all good things in and of themselves, absolutely. But what I find is it also sows huge levels of confusion because none of the experiences, none of the encounters. tell exactly the same story in the same way. It's it's not as though a particular government has sent ambassadors to us to tell us this is our program for good government. It's always obfuscated. It's always mysterious. It's always um, predictions that that semi come true, but don't fully. And I, I often contrast, if you look at Uh, Biblical prophecy, for example, biblical prophecy always talks about, yes, there will be horrific times ahead, there will be terrible disasters and all the rest of it, but it promises in the end absolute resolution where God will be all in all and there will be total peace eventually. And we find that in all true Marian, um, or at least approved Marian apparitions as well. Yes, punishment is spoken of or at least experiences that will will take place so as to bring people back to God, etc., But in the end, what are we told in the end? You know, the mother will triumph in the end. There will be peace in the end. There will be there will be grace. Whereas what the alien intelligence is or, you know, extraterrestrial or gray or whatever you want to go. It's utter destruction and it's utter fear. And I often wonder, you know, something that is teaching only through fear that often brings a kind of a negative experience around it as well. But it's, it's a hugely complicated end of things. And I mean, in the end, I come down on simply, I don't know. But I am also aware of a number of different people working in the kind of more spiritual side of this who would talk about the, even the, the, the deep reaction of uh, horror that an awful lot of human beings have when they encounter even the image of the gray or the gray face or that kind of thing, that there is something deep within that seems to, to almost be revolted by it straight away. And we also have a kind of a parody of the incarnation that takes place constantly within it in terms of kind of sexual um, side of it, the impregnation side of it, the removal of um, the kind of hybridization. You know, a lot of these tend to be tropes that are kind of mocking in a negative way, the, the, the sort of the incarnation teaching as well. But that would be coming at it from a directly Christian critique, which wouldn't necessarily be what many people listening to this would be would be too interested in, I would say.
2: What's so special about Hero Bread soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas?
1: You know, people have said to me, like, oh, it's a shamanic experience. You just have to let it happen. And my reply to that is often be, I have not been consulted about this. They have not come to me and said, this is what we want to do. And this is where it's going. It's just something they, they seem to want to do. And my answer is no. Let's talk about it. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and then I'll make yeah. the decision. But until then, Absolutely. the answer is no.
3: And and let's talk about shamanic initiation for a moment or two. So there, there are two levels of initiation within indigenous traditions and I would say also within most spiritual traditions, but kind of hidden behind liturgy, ritual, et cetera. The first is the initiation into humanity itself, into becoming an adult, right? That's that's the basic rites of initiation. And part of that is actually always, always includes a decision moment where the elders might gather around you and tell you, you are now ready to be initiated, but you actually have to say, okay, here we go. You know, I'm committing to this process. This is much, much more true with regard to shamanic initiation. Um, I'm using shamanic now in the the kind of wide, broad sense, but effectively the initiation into being a person of wisdom or healing or power within the various traditions, um, indigenous right the way through to formalized religion. All of those may have a divine call moment, a kind of an irrepressible experience of this is my path. Um, and I have to walk it whether I like it or not. But there is always a decision as part of it. There is always an encounter with whether it's the helpers or the guides or the divine being or the gods or whatever it might be. There is a moment where agreement has to come. You know, the, 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 the will has to actually surrender itself and, and be present and kind of, OK, there might be a you're moving into mystery and, you know, you have to trust us. That's fine. That's that's part and parcel of religious surrender uh, or of spiritual surrender. But there is the recognition that this is something that while it might be dangerous and it might result in the death to at least part of our being or aspects of our being for transformation or for change, there is still the understanding that this is safe, protected, guided by elders, moved, uh, guided by ancestors, whatever it might be. Whereas if we take the shamanic model of the the abduction experience, while there are definitely shamanic elements within it, I would say absolutely. If you look at any kind of shamanic literature, you will see elements within it. To my mind, what we're seeing again, it goes back again and again to this theatrical parodying of stuff rather than an actual real experience of transformation that will actually allow the person to come to full integration. I was very interested in that documentary that was done Oh, gosh, Um, about two or three years ago about the young guy who had had the not abduction experience, but encounter experience and then was left in this state of absolute um, suffering, really, for many, many years afterwards, isolation, and then finally came to full integration through going through the shamanic initiation process within his own indigenous group. I, I think it was called Witness to Another World. Jacques Vallée was, was present in it as a commentator. I may have been one of James Fox's films. I can't, I can't remember exactly, but it, it was presented in the end that this had been a continuous process all the way along and that the young person who became the really broken adult, you know, was now completing a process through going through this shamanic initiation with his own tribe, his own people. And he definitely comes out of it, you know, very integrated and healed. I'd love to know how he is now a number of years down after it. But it's, it's, it's interesting. To my mind, one of the storylines that could as equally have been presented was this person was extremely damaged by their encounter. And in actual fact, it was the finding of community, unity and spiritual transformational practice with his own indigenous tribe again, that healed him of that injury and wound. It may not have been a continuous initiation. And when we say that the alien encounter is an initiation, we are actually projecting onto them a pattern that we find in our own life that we think they are accomplishing. Um, So I'm always very wary of projecting onto the other it's like what I said before, we're encountering a culture we know nothing about. So one of the questions we, we, we should always have is, well, what's this really all about? You know. And if something intervenes and says, you know, shut up, go asleep and let me do whatever I want to you, that, that is so transgressive beyond, beyond belief at a bodily level, at a spiritual level, at a mental and emotional level. And this idea that we should trust that, I would reject completely in the more traditional religions the more formal religions even if the prophet is called the prophet always has the possibility of saying no
1: Uh, it's probably more than one saint but i know i read about at least one saint that would have entities manifest regularly and said without fail he would rebuke them and often they would go away no matter what form they take it could be the the form of a beautiful angel could be the form of of mary
3: Oh, sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, again, part of our discernment would be, you know, you never accept a vision or an experience as to, you know, on its surface level. Today, actually, in the Catholic calendar is St. John of the Cross's feast and the 14th of December. And he was um, an extraordinary mystic, one of the greatest saints and mystics in, in the history of the church. And his constant refrain to beginners in the spiritual life is trust nothing. You know, it's it's attend to uh, the basic spiritual practices. And if you get beautiful lights or wonderful consolations or angels appearing or whatever, you look past them and you let them go, because all of these things will have to be let go of eventually anyway. And if they're from God, they will bring blessing. And if not, then dismiss them immediately. And so, you know, the testing of the spirits, uh, the teaching of scripture that Satan himself can appear as an angel of light because he was an angel of light. That's part of his, his nature. That we need to be very, very careful with with anything that that turns up, and not accept it on um, on the surface level. And also to to understand again, it's about deep understanding of our own psychology. You know, so human beings so often manifest what they just what they want to be true, what they what they what they think you know things should be, and unfortunately don't arrive at a place uh, too often where. They're simply able to accept reality as it actually is. I speak for myself in that as well. You know, we, we all struggle with it. But I think where there are these extraordinary experiences happening, knowing the basics, knowing the basic rules, the basic laws, the basic guidelines, if you want to call them that, that have evolved over thousands of years and which are similar across the vast majority of civilizations and religions is a very good place to start.
1: Do you have any thoughts on what I call the opposite nature of, let's just take the Bigfoot phenomenon, and I've brought this up before, with these angelic apparitions or Marian apparitions and so forth, you often get this odor of sanctity that happened around Mm. saints as well. Mm. Bigfoot smells really bad. Uh, Mm. You will get the manifestation of, of, say, flowers and and things like this, uh, Bigfoot leaves scat behind. You you know, Mm. they're brighter than the sun they'll say he's he's blacker than black often mm. so do you have any thoughts on sort of the the opposite nature of of that phenomenon what it might mean
3: sure i, I mean i think it's it's interesting in our tradition we, we we speak of the higher entities if you want to call them that the higher spiritual powers um manifest uh, as warm and filled with light whereas the negative ones uh, appear dark and cold and that's the kind of kind of opposition with it and i don't i I'm not even going to use the word negative at the moment I'd say lower lower entities appear dark and cold uh, and this is often noted in places you know where there there are hauntings or, or problems you'll often find you know the cold spot, the cold patch that kind of thing uh, leaking of cold water, etc so if for a moment we just put to one side the complete um separation between angelic and demonic and just go through our levels of being for a moment, I think there is a lot to be said for the idea put forward that one of the reasons we get this kind of rotting smell and, you know, odious liquids and things like that being put forward or being left behind, I should say, by these things, may be because they are some kind of spiritual entity that is literally pulling matter together to be able to manifest for a short period of time, but is almost immediately decaying. Now, that is something that goes back to even the medieval understanding of uh, the incubi and succubi, and those kind of entities, where w- human beings have a kind of a physical experience with them, they appear to manifest physically. They can even draw uh, elements um, from the human. There, there was often an obsession with with um, garnering eggs or fetuses or sperm or whatever from from the male or female within this. But they, they the the medieval uh, doctors and theologians would say that they had the ability to pull together literally from the air um, the elements necessary to form a human body or a pleasing human body or in, a, in, a, in the monstrous sense an unpleasing human body for at least a short period of time and that often there would be the complete dissolution of this afterwards and that very often a liquid that was found in these places afterwards may have been the elements that, that were now dissolving or disappearing and this would include the, the negative smell and stuff like that. I think that's that's quite possible and it's it's something that bears thinking about when we you know charge into the forest after the sasquatch and then suddenly discover you know they're gone because they can move super quick or they can fade away or or um what do they call a cloak and all all of this kind of thing and maybe they can do all of these things but to my mind there are earlier and and more consistent descriptions of similar things doing Similar things, if you know what I mean. Oh and, yeah, that's. that's and from that point of view, we can we can kind of say, okay, well, at least humanity has at least been aware that these things can happen.
1: I'm reminded of the wolf at Skimwalker Ranch when they shot it and they blew a piece of flesh off of this giant wolf that appeared the first day the family moved in there, and yeah, the flesh rotted almost immediately.
3: Yeah, the same happened to the. Um, I often wonder about you know all of the the people who shoot a Bigfoot and take you know, lumps of the flesh and hair and it goes back and it comes back as bear or it comes back as wolf or it comes back as unknown or vegetable matter or dog or whatever it might be. It may very well be all of that stuff. It might very well be, you know, contaminated. It may be that whatever these entities are, they pulled those elements together to make themselves for a while. And it may also mean that when they're in the physical world, they do, you know, eat or or produce scat or whatever it might be or 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 come into this world so as to um uh, to avail of of the physical aspects of life for a while before they go again we we simply just don't know but you know the normal rule of thumb for us would be that which produces heat and light and i mean warmth now not not boiling uh, but but you know that which produces warmth and light is generally towards uh, the upper side of things and that which produces darkness and coldness tends towards the lower end of things. And we can think of that with the the alien abduction end of things as well. Uh, People report again and again feeling of being absolutely freezing and cold or damp within these places that the experience of the texture of the aliens themselves is often cold, damp, clammy. You can uh, uh, look at that from a biological point of view, sure. But you can also look at it from a spiritual point of view and wonder about the kind of materials that are are left. Nick Redfern in his famous book um, on uh, the whole Collins elite End of things. And I would have real problems with a lot of, if they do exist, their kind of beliefs. But uh, one of the things he does talk about is the fact that um, the so-called biological material found after crashes and falls, you know, the bodies and things like that, that even scientists at the time were sort of saying that these couldn't possibly function. They seemed to be left around on purpose uh, to be found. And that very often they had real difficulty preserving them because they would just dissolve and disappear. So again, um, the pointing that was being made at that stage was to the kind of alchemical traditions of sort of producing homunculi and uh, golems and things like that. You know, the sort of uh, um, the, the, the falsely living that once their purpose is done, disappear and dissolve into the elements that they came from.
1: Now, I've spoken of this before on the show a few times, and I think I, we even talked about it before, but it's, it's worth bringing up in, in in this conversation again, I've said, you know, occasionally I I get people that contact me. That's usually like a mother with a child. And they say, you know, like something very negative with some entity is happening in their house. Usually like, okay. The first thing I tell them is ask it to stop. Yeah. Just absolutely firmly, but politely say, stop. You're scaring us. We don't want this. And the success rate is, it's very good. I mean, I I can't put a percentage on it, but often they will come back and say, Hey, Hey, it stopped. Yeah. So I guess what I'm getting at is how much power do people have themselves over these negative entities?
3: So so much so that they don't want you to know you have this power. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, right. I think it's it's really important. So let me take it, first of all, from my own tradition's point of view and then we can expand it out. So within the Judeo-Christian tradition, we would say that humanity is the level of being that is created in the image and likeness of the divine and so carries within us a spark of divine life constantly so no matter who the human being is merely to exist is to be a temple of the spirit of god we would speak of it as the apex mentis the highest part of the soul is where the divine dwells simply holding the human being in being and so the nearer we come to living a life of kind of faith of hope of love the the nearer we come to accepting the the incarnation etc all of those things the stronger and more authoritative that, that power becomes within us. And so human beings of old had what we call Adamic authority, for obviously from, from Adam and Eve, which was the authority over all of the lower levels of creation. Um, and this was manifested in uh, or, or symbolized in the book of Genesis where God gives Adam the power to name all of the lower creatures because to know their name, to know their true name, their essential Adamic name is to have authority over them and the ability to command them, which all of this was, was lost with the break of the fall, but it is renewed and restored through the incarnation. And so one of the things that we still have shades of is that in particular situations, there is still a spiritual authority present within every human being. So particularly within their own home and particularly over their own children. And so uh, a mother or a father can speak a word of authority when it comes to the protection of their own child or their own space. And this can be very, very effective. The second thing is we forget that an awful and this is going broader, but, you know, if we look at the folkloric tradition, etc., most of these entities require permission to actually manifest or be very negative within our experience. Like, go back to the very simple thing of the vampire not being able to enter the house without being welcomed in. You know, without the same was true for the, um, with, some, with some different circumstances, with some limitations on what I'm about to say, but the same was true most of the time with the gentry, the fairy end of things. So there was this idea that the spaces that we make as our own, that again are kind of hallowed by love by relationship by community etc we have some level of spiritual authority over those and i don't mean religious authority i mean just general spiritual authority and when somebody commands or makes a very clear statement that this is to stop and you are to go now and you may not come back here it is very effective and i'm going to say as well very often more effective where mothers are concerned i know i know even of a number of exorcisms where the exorcist was finding it extremely difficult to finish the exorcism completely so the person would be left totally alone and it was the prayers of their own mother that actually secured it in the end
1: so could it be and again i'm i'm going to fall down on the side of like demons are probably Rare than people think they are in the world mm-hmm. of the paranormal. I think there's a lot of like, yeah. I would I would agree. Yeah, A yeah. lot, lot of yelling demon when when maybe perhaps it's not.
3: But if you if you if you yell that at something that isn't that, um, it either gets insulted and angry and acts out, or if it's something very minim, you know, very towards the negative emotional negativity, or whatever, it's perfectly happy to wear that label sure. and to assume a power that's that you know to assume a greater authority than it actually has.
1: Let's say a demon is has infested a place, uh, okay. or God forbid, a, it, it possessed a human. Okay, it may require an exorcist, but does it always? Could there be enough of a, a spiritual authority that a person could themselves cast out a demon, or, or it, it, does it always? When it comes to demon, in those rare cases, does it always require, in a sense, a, a professional at that point?
3: Um, I, I don't think there's a hard or fast rule to it. All the baptized. Uh, again, I'm speaking from our tradition now. But all the baptized have, particularly the baptized and confirmed, have the authority to pray in Christ's name, to pray in His authority, in His, in his authority. That's why all Christian prayer is through Christ, our Lord. You know this. This is this is how we pray. And so praying um, in that way, particularly beseeching the intercession of Our Lady or the saints, or or bringing in, um, you know, th- their spiritual authority through intercession, through fasting, uh, especially, and through the use of the sacraments and sacramentals, is very, very effective at removing um, diabolical influence, or indeed even 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 possession. St. Teresa of Avila, for example, who wasn't an ordained priest, wasn't an exorcist, recommended that the, the use of holy water, particularly as a major sacramental of the church, holy water has extraordinary effect, as does blessed or consecrated, uh, blessed or exercised salt for removing these influences. Um, and again, we know the folkloric uh, rules around the fact that, that, you know, all negative entities seem to despise salt, seem to despise a lot of the elements and objects that are used within within religious worship. In terms of how you would intercede, um, the recommendation always is that the the untrained person or the non-exorcist would not address the demon directly. If we're fairly certain it's a demon, um, because then you're entering into dialogue and you are inviting the possibility of the attention of the other side Um, in a kind of an oppositional way. Instead, it should be done in an indirect way. So rather than us facing them down directly, we appeal to the higher spiritual powers, particularly to to Our Lady and to Christ and the archangels for them to do the work. But we have the spiritual authority to to invite them and to invoke them to be present. Um, Whereas the exorcist who is doing a proper full exorcism, as opposed to just deliverance prayer or Blessing a place when it's a full exorcism, which is, as you know, very rare, they are empowered by the church to speak in the name and the authority of Christ directly to the demonic entity. Um and, and that's why an exorcism is successful if it's being done in that way under that authority. But even then, the 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 exorcist would normally have quite a number of people behind them as a as a prayer team, as an intercession team, and you know, would accompany the exorcism with uh, intercessory practices like fasting like praying like pilgrimages etc and so uh, yeah i mean the the answer is is yes it can be removed simply through prayer and intercessory prayer by others but the one thing i would warn anybody is if they think that it's definitively that or if they have some evidence that it's definitively that, that they wouldn't get into dialogue with it themselves
1: Even if it wasn't demonic, the dialogue, as you mentioned before, it it often comes through. These predictions may or may not come true. They speak in half-truths, which, again, might not necessarily be lies on their part. It might just Mm. be the way they understand things. A
3: a perfect illustration of this. Again, remember, you're dealing with beings that are outside of time, don't even understand our way way of, of being in chronology. You know, very often they speak in the poetic, subconscious, symbolic way rather than in direct conversation. And a perfect example of that was the story, I'm trying to get his name right now, my goodness. The chap from from Hellier that you had on recently. Tyler. Tyler, Tyler. yeah, Yeah, sorry. When he was giving that wonderful story about the, the being that came up from under the ground, wrestled with the person and then gave them the uh, protection from apes.
1: Right, yes. Yeah. Which
3: could be interpreted as, you know, apes will never go near you or could be interpreted as you are now going to be protected by apes from everything else. Which seems to be, the, the latter seems to be what, what happened for the person. It's, a, it's an extraordinary story and it's a wonderful, wonderful explication of how these beings speak and think now that's fine because it was something positive that was being given to the person but you know this is where people when they deal with them or they try and have conversation with them um, and they think they're getting one thing and they're getting something else entirely or they think they've made you know an ironclad deal or or agreement and you know it, it turns out that the 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 fine print uh, or the 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 ability of of the entity to kind of twist words and meaning is is huge so yeah I'd be I'd be very careful I mean look it's as simple as the old folkloric stories of you know I want gold and I want it here and now so the gold appears here and now but you know it's gone in the morning you know they they, they fulfilled their part of the bargain they gave you gold here and now they they you know they could equally say well you never said it's to last you know until the end of my life or whatever it might be those stories teach us again and again the importance of of recognizing that the way we think the way we speak is not the way they think not the way they speak and um, they have a kind of a subtlety of conversation that the vast majority of us would be um, very 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 silly to try and get involved in
1: Sometimes you ask for a skull, and then you walk uh, a <laughs> yes,
3: you know yeah, 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 yeah. and you find a You're skull a head. Skull, yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Again, I mean, that's uh, we, we've said this before in other conversations. You know, asking for things, you know, you'll get it, but it mightn't be in the way that you that you want it or that you intended it to be, and then. You know, then you've got the, the difficulty of having to deal with the consequences of, well, we gave you something and, you know, you haven't fulfilled your side of the bargain. You didn't take it home with you. You didn't value it. So other things begin to happen and we get into that rolling, you know, rolling circumstance un- unless somebody knows how to defuse the bomb.
1: Is there a way for people to discern good, bad or otherwise as regards to the other?
3: Yeah, I, I think so. The most basic one of all is, you know, go to what Christ Himself said: "By by their fruits you will know them." So, what what is this producing in your life? Is it producing? We talk about we talk about the fruits of the Holy Spirit. You know, um, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self control, greater compassion, a growth into a more integrated, more authentic human being whose relationships are improving, whose Um, you know, who's living a life of gratitude and peace. If it's producing those kind of fruits, wonderful. You know, follow that. Fantastic. Be present to it. But if it's producing anxiety, worry, fear, self-recrimination, rumination, depression, darkness, and I mean darkness of understanding of intellect, breakdown of relationships around you, and all of those kind of things that are, that are that are going on or an inability to actually be present in the real in the human experience, but constantly just lost in all of this um, without any any ability to kind of break or breathe or take perspective on it. Then I would I would worry.
1: Yes, that obsession, which we often talk about. Take breaks. Oh, take breaks. Absolutely. Don't let the other be the entirety of your
3: life. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's really important that everybody is able to. You know, we should be we should be becoming more human all of the time. And and if something is taking us away from our humanity uh, and from our ability to to live a life that has joy in it, that has light in it, that has goodness in it, that has love in it, then something's gone wrong somewhere. The
1: obsession with this stuff manifests. We see it in the Bigfoot world in I mean, there's a very famous Bigfoot researcher. One of the, the classic ones, and I, I forget which one, but he was given a, an ultimatum by his wife. You know, it's me and the kids are Bigfoot, and this guy said, Bigfoot. Yeah. And, you know, that's, that's awful, right? It's like, it should not come to yeah. that. It should not come to yeah. That. The the ghost yeah. teams that constantly, with the drama in, in these, in these uh ghost hunting teams where they're always breaking up and starting new teams and this and that. I think that's part and parcel of dealing with the other. And I think it, it has to do with the obsessiveness of it where you get, too monofocus on this stuff and it, it's just not good for your general life i think
3: yeah well i mean going back to that idea of of attention it, it wants our attention and in some ways it can be like the little the kind of the toddler that's th- that's throwing a tantrum you know um if you're not giving it enough attention it will it will cause problems to separate you from the things that would take you away from it
1: yeah yeah and we we start having damaging relationships and stuff. It's just to me that's always like a, a warning sign, like
3: it's 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 the first red flag, really. I think that's really important where people actually need to take a break and breathe a bit. you know, um, there's a very interesting documentary that was done over here recently of it was about a guy who wanted to cross the um Atlantic Ocean uh, rowing. You know, so it's it, as far away from strange familiars as you can imagine. But they, all the training was done. These two guys were really training. They were very good friends. For, you know, everything was going great. One of the guys was completely obsessed with it. The other guy was like, this is a fun thing to do. They got into into the boat. And I think two days into it, the guy who was, this is a fun thing to do, had to be kind of airlifted out. Um, I think two. Or, it was two or three days into it anyway because the intensity of the other guy was just overpowering him completely he just wasn't able to function anymore and the other guy amazingly over 80 or 90 days completed the 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 trek but it nearly killed him and when he came back his wife and and child were waiting for him and you know the wife was basically saying to him look this this has to stop you know you, you have a family here waiting for you and you need to be able to give them your presence What was fascinating from that point of view and the parallel to this is that the guy who kind of had a sense of energy and fun and life about it was the guy who realized very quickly, I need to get out of this. This is going to kill me. Whereas the fellow who was so intense that he was he was able to drive it and keep it going across the way. But he said himself now at the other side of it, he's kind of, well, I don't really know what that gave me. It didn't seem to give him anything other than I did it. And that's wonderful. Um, so i think there's that in the human psyche that we need to be careful of that obsessive um to become obsessed by anything about anything you know even religion for that from that point of view is never a good thing we need to have balance in all things
1: don't be choosing bigfoot over your kids folks
3: (laughs) i I would definitely re-echo that one Yeah, Yeah, yeah 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 brother richard thank you so
1: much for talking with us merry christmas
3: You are most welcome. Merry Christmas to you and to all in strange familiars land. I hope it's a wonderful one and a blessed one. And however you spend it, however you celebrate it, I hope it's something that brings joy and refreshment of spirit.
1: It wasn't one of our normal Christmas shows, but uh, we had planned this for a while and it just happened to fall around Christmas. So we'll call this our Christmas show and just say Merry Christmas at the end here.
3: Absolutely. And maybe we can say that the reason you just find snowy footprints uh, behind from from Santa Claus or the occasional. Little bit of soot down the chimney is because perhaps that's how he's dissolving as he as he disappears back up the chimney. My favorite wild man.
1: Very <laughs> <laughs> good. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Just a reminder, we did get the mugs back in stock this week. So we have Strange Familiars mugs and two different Bigfoot mugs now. You can check them out at our Etsy shop. Links are in the show notes or at strangefamiliars.com slash merch. Merry Christmas to those who celebrate. Hope everyone has a safe and happy holiday. We'll be back soon with more Strange Familiars. Strange Familiars is a production of Dark Color Arts, music, books, art, podcasts, and more. Intro and background music is by Stonebreath. If you want to hear more or purchase music, you can go to stonebreath.bandcamp.com. We're on Facebook, facebook.com slash strangefamiliars, where you can join the Strange Familiars gathering group. We're on Instagram, at Strange Familiars, one word, no underscore. You can find us on the web at strangefamiliars.com, and remember for merch strangefamiliars.com slash merch.